What can I get for you today? Um, oh, I, I can't decide what's good. Um, how about something either sweet or not sweet? Or... Oh, I don't know. Well, how about just like a regular latte? That's fine. Okay. It'll be three dollars and three cents. Sorry.
Hey, here you go, ma'am. Here, here's your latte. Can I get you anything else today? No. All right, enjoy. Excuse me. Yes. I was wondering, um, would you mind if I sat with you? No. <laughs> Why not? You don't want to sit with me. <laughs> Why not? I'm just not very good company. What's your name? Samantha. Do your friends call you Sam? They might, if I had any. Well, what about family? No. Husband. I'm not married. Why are you talking to me? We have nothing in common. <laughs> We're both just people. Come talk to me for a minute. Okay. I'm not married. I don't have any friends. Because, well, they all gave up on me. They just disappeared. I don't blame them. Who would want to hang out with a loser like me, right? And my family? I'm an only child. My parents? They were religious. They didn't want to have anything to do with me. Not after all my failed relationships. So, I'm just all alone. What if I told you you weren't? Weren't what? Alone? <laughs> wow. That would be nice. Because, you know, I'm just really, really tired of being alone. Is that why you come to this coffee shop? So you won't feel alone? Maybe. But, you know, it doesn't help. I still am alone when I'm around other people. No. You just think you are, Sam. Only my friends call me Sam. Yeah, I know. Well, our series, uh, <clears throat> Coffee with a Perfect Stranger, is all about Jesus meeting people and changing lives. If we were to go back in history 2,000 years, we would find a meeting that Jesus had with what I would consider to be the least likely person to encounter Jesus. Think about that for a moment. It's a big old region with a lot of people. We call it the Holy Land or Palestine the very last person we would imagine Jesus meeting is the lady we're going to talk about today. We could, uh, we could start off explaining why this meeting would not be very likely with a little bit of history. 
She lived in a place called Samaria. Now, you've got to use your uh, imagination here a little bit to do a little geography. Jesus did most of his work in, in a region, it would be like our states today, a region called Judea. That's where Jerusalem was, and it was the, most, it was the holiest region there. And then uh, right, above, right above Judea was this place called Samaria, and then the other place where Jesus did most of his work was called Galilee. You'd have to imagine Judea, if you want to get an idea of our location, Judea would be like Texas. You know, as I said, that was a great place. <laughs> Judea would be like Texas, and Galilee would be like Kansas, and Samaria would be Oklahoma. <laughs> Sorry for all you Oklahomans out there. The Jews did everything they could to avoid Samaria. They wouldn't go there. It was not because it was a particularly inhospitable place. It was just that hundreds of years before, something bad had happened, and it changed the relationship. Because, see, the people who lived in Samaria many, many years before had been Jewish people. But because the Jewish people had gotten away from God, God allowed them to go into captivity some five to 700 years before Jesus was born. And to the Jews, it was very important that they married other Jewish people because they wanted to keep their belief system that God had given them straight. And God had given them very strict instructions about who they were to marry. But when the people who lived in the region that eventually became known as Samaria, when they were taken captive, they intermarried with the pagans. And they became, in the minds of the Jews, they became not only half-breeds racially, but they they became people to shun because they now had, these people in Samaria had a very contorted religious system. It was some of Judaism, but it was also some of paganism, and it was all mixed up, and Jews did not want anything at all to do with Samaritans. By every means possible, they avoided even going through Samaria if they had to go from Judea to Galilee. So you can imagine the shock on the disciples' face when Jesus told them, guys, I have to go through Samaria. Jesus was on his way to meet the last person, the least likely person that you and I could imagine him meeting. There was a lady who lived in Samaria in a town called Sychar, and Jesus had honed in on her. We have GPS today, and I'm always amazed at how these, how these aerial photographs can come in from outer space and just zero in right on a building. Jesus has something more than that. He knew what was in this woman's heart. And he said to the disciples, I have to go talk. I have to go there. They didn't know he was going to talk to her, but Jesus understood. He knew he was going there to talk to this woman. But as I said, she was the last person that you would think that Jesus would talk to because, first of all, she came from this place called Samaria that had this convoluted, contorted belief system. And and these were people that most Jews tried to shun. But beyond that, she, she had a lot of issues that were personal to her. She had been married five times and divorced five times. And she was sleeping with a man that she wasn't married to. Now that's bad. I thought to myself, what kind of, what kind of life had she had up to this point? You know, her first wedding, no doubt, was, was really exciting. You know, it was the white dress and the shoes and the rice and, you know, and the rings and the wedding cake and something borrowed and something blue and and wedding photographers, it was all of that stuff. But, you know, then the second wedding came along, and it, it wasn't as big a deal. And then the third wedding, and I imagine by the time, I mean, it's kind of hard to get excited about a fifth wedding. 
You know, I think she had gone from being very excited the first time she got married to whatever (laughs) by the fifth wedding. And how many fusses and arguments can you have in five marriages gone bad? I I tried to think up a word. I tried to think of a single word to describe this woman, and I couldn't come up with it. I had to come up with with two words. There there were two words that kind of told this woman's story better than any other words, and they were the words bad history. Bad history. I don't know what caused those marriages to go wrong. You know, it would be real easy for us to look at the story and say, this is a bad woman. You know, five marriages, five divorces, sleeping with a man who was not her husband. There's no doubt that she had some stuff that she was doing that was wrong. But before you get too heavy on her case, could I, could I tell you that it was a very different world back then? It was a very male-oriented culture. And this was even true in Judea, that, you know, where, where all the religious people lived, that there, there were things going on about divorce. Divorce had become very light in those days. And it was all up to the man. Moses had said in the Old Testament that if a man found impurity in his wife, that he could give her a writing of divorcement. But by the time Jesus came along, there were very liberal rabbis who were teaching that impurity could be anything. It was up to a man's interpretation. It was a man's world. So it didn't just have to do with adultery. If the wife burned her husband's dinner, he could, say, he could write her out a note that said, You're divorced. Goodbye. Or if she insulted his mother, this is true, this is history. I'm not just making this up, this is history. If she insulted the man's mother, he could write her out a note and say, goodbye, you're out of here. I mean, if, he, if she did anything that he didn't like, he could just give her a writing of divorcement and say, you're gone. Now, if that was true in Jesus' area, how much more would that have been true in the area of the Samaritans? So maybe that was it. Maybe she had just met men who had used her. And when they were tired of her, they said, goodbye, you're out of here. I don't know. I just know it was bad history. How many of you did I just talk to? Bad history. I I can't tell you everything that was wrong in this woman's life. I can't tell you how much of it was her fault. I I can't tell you how much of it was the fault of others. I, I don't even know how much of it happened hundreds of years before she was born. But I know it was bad history. How many of you have a disconnection between yourself and God because of bad history? Some of it's your fault. Some of it is stuff that other people have done to you. Some of it goes back hundreds of years. In our case, it all goes back thousands of years to when there were two people in a garden and God said, don't eat of the tree in the middle. And Adam did. And a lot of what we deal with today is bad history because of that. But before I start getting on to old Adam, I have to realize I've made a lot of contributions to that myself. Bad history. Maybe you're here today and you're listening to my message and you, you came in on this series, you know, Coffee with a Perfect Stranger, and you decide, I just want to see what a church is doing that has coffee, a coffee shop on the stage. But when I start talking to you about personal matters, you kind of you shrink back and say, oh, I don't know about this. Maybe you don't even like to go to church, or maybe you're watching me on television right now. (laughs) And the reason why you don't go to church is you're afraid that if you go to church, that some pastor like me is going to stand up there and start talking about personal issues, and he's going to get under your hood and behind your grill, and and you're going to say, hey, I don't want to do that because I've got bad history, and that bad history keeps me separated from God. 
Do you notice that all this woman's bad history didn't scare Jesus off? That's for a reason. See, Jesus didn't come to rake her over the coals about her bad history. He came to give her a future. Now, we all have that bad history. Unscrew those halos for a moment. I know you and you know me. We all have our bad history. If Jesus had wanted to deal with our bad history, he could have come to earth and he could have accused us all. He could have prosecuted every one of us for all our bad history. But the Bible says in the chapter previous to this, John 3, that Jesus did not come into our world to condemn the world because that job had already been done. We did it ourselves. Every once in a while, someone will say to me, I can't believe a loving God would send someone to hell. You're right. God doesn't send people to hell. We send ourselves. We were already on that road. Jesus didn't come into our world to condemn the world. He came in there to give us a future. So as I said, this is the last woman you would expect Jesus to talk to, the last person. Beyond that, there was a, like I said, there was, there was a strata to culture that involved men and women. The way the world looked at it in those days, men were up here and women were down here. The average Jewish man began his prayer day with a prayer, I thank you, O God, that I am not a Gentile or a woman. And so, you know, men didn't talk to women in public settings like that. Jews didn't talk to Samaritans. Beyond that, Jesus was a, a, a good man and also God, as we know. And the woman was a bad woman. She had a lot of bad stuff in her past. And so there was really no reason in the world for Jesus to talk to this woman. And yet Jesus told his disciples, I got to go to Samaria today. In Jesus' mind, he knew he was in for a meeting and he was looking forward to it. Let's read about it. John 4, verse 5. Eventually, he, Jesus, came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. I don't know how to preach. I wish I knew how to preach because this is so awesome. You got to understand, as I said, there was this real disconnection between Jews and Samaritans, and a Jew would not even shake hands with a Samaritan, and there was a reason for that. They, they, they didn't understand germs and microbiology the way we do today, but in the Jewish mind, he, he was afraid to touch a Samaritan, or even afraid to touch anything a Samaritan had touched, because in the Jewish mind, Whatever impurity, whatever defilement there was in the Samaritan would go out through the Samaritan into whatever that Samaritan touched and into the Jewish person, so much so that a Jewish person would shrink back from anything, shrink back from touching a Samaritan or, or even touch anything that that Samaritan had touched. So what's the shot that Jesus fires across the bow? Would you give me a drink of water? huge was that? That's pretty personal. That's very personal. Because the Samaritan woman would have to put the vase that she had carried with her hands down into the water, pull the vase up, pour out a drink for Jesus, and give him a drink of water. From the very onset, Jesus disarmed her by asking her, would you give me a drink? 
But what's beautiful about this church, and what I wish I knew how to preach, is that Jesus was not afraid of getting this woman's germs. He had come to bear her sins. I may be talking to somebody here today, and it's like I said last week. You, you say, I, I'm afraid to go to church. I'm afraid the roof would cave in on me. And, and maybe some of you shrink back from contact with God because you think God wouldn't want anything to do with me. Could I tell you today, and I mean no sacrilege by this, God's not afraid of your germs. He sent his son to bear your sins. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, the Bible says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He's not afraid of touching you. Well, verse 9, John chapter 4, the woman was surprised for all the reasons that we just talked about. For Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Verse 10, Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who I am, You would ask me, and I would give you living water, or literally a fountain of water. Now, this is the second week in a row. If you were here last week, you know what I'm going to talk about. This is the second week in a row that a person had an issue with knowing who Jesus was. Last week, it was the rich young ruler who asked Jesus, you know, a good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, that's the wrong question to ask. Why are you calling me good? If I'm God, if I'm not God, I'm not good. And if I'm God, that's the wrong question to ask me. Now the Samaritan woman's in the same boat. She doesn't know who Jesus is. Jesus has said, give me a drink of water. And she says to him, I don't understand why you're asking me for a drink. Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who I was, you would ask me and I would give you a well of life or living water inside. In fact, in fact what Jesus was saying is, if you would ask me, I would give you a life. That's what you don't have right now. See, here's the thing about this woman, and she's like some of us today. Maybe, maybe this is someone you know. Maybe it's, it's very close to home. But do you know somebody who, whose life is over, but somehow they, they keep living? I mean, long ago, their hopes and dreams and all the things that they wanted to see in life have failed to materialize, and they're dead, but they still have to go to work. They still have to keep the money coming in to buy groceries. They feel like their life is over, but somehow they, they, they got to make it go on. That's who this woman was. She was going to get water, but her life was over. Five marriages, five divorces, sleeping with a man who wasn't her husband. She is marking time until she dies. And yet Jesus said to her, if you would ask me, if you knew who I was, I could give you a life. Who am I talking to this morning? I, I just talked about you. You're, you. You sit here listening to me today. You're watching me on television. And you say, my life is over, Mark. It didn't work out. And maybe somebody's here today. You're saying, I wish I was dead. And yet against all that, Jesus shows up and says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me and I would give you a life. That's what Jesus is saying to her. This is her opportunity to say, okay. But notice in verse 11, she says, but, sir... Now, whenever God says something, don't put a but after that, all right? I mean, just accept it. But she says, but sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket. And she said, this is a very deep well. Where would you get this living water? And besides, are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? And the answer to that question is yes. Yes. How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his cattle enjoyed? Verse 13, Jesus replied, people soon become thirsty 
after drinking this water. Now, what's he talking about there? Water here is a metaphor. We've already said that. Jesus said, I can give you living water. It was a metaphor for I can give you a life. But here's what he said as he pointed to the well. And again, he's not just talking about physical water here. He's talking about all the things that we deal with in the physical realm. Money, sex, power, influence. Jesus pointed to the well and said, whoever drinks from this water is going to get thirsty again. Now, now, now church, let me just be real candid and open with you for a moment. I'm not a person who necessarily likes to be standing in front of a crowd. I've never been one who wanted attention. I'm a shy person. And the moment I stand up here, I know that there are many of you who are vastly more intelligent than I. And I would be insecure about standing up here opening the Word of God if it were not for one thing. And that one thing is this. I know that until a man or a woman finds Jesus Christ, he or she is hungry. You may be an intellectual, you may have a PhD, you may have millions of dollars, but the reason why I feel confident talking to you today, even though you're smarter and richer and probably much better looking than I am, the one thing I know, the one thing that keeps me up here is I know until you have Jesus in your life, you're hungry. You may not know what you're missing or how to get it, but you're hungry. And that's what Jesus said to this woman. If you knew who I was, you would ask me and I would give you a life. Whoever drinks of this water, whether it's money or sex or power or whatever, Jesus said, there's never enough. There's always a thirst. Jesus said, I can give you a living water inside. Now, verse 14, Jesus said, the water I give them takes away thirst altogether. It becomes a perpetual spring within them, giving them eternal life. Now, chapter 4, verse 15. Please, sir, the woman said. Give me some of that water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to haul water. Now, does she understand what Jesus is talking about? No. I mean, Jesus, all the stuff he's saying to her is going right over her head. But give her credit for one thing. She said, I want it. I don't understand it, but I want it. Jesus has got more business that he's got to conduct here. So in verse 16, he says, go and call your husband. Uh Uh-oh. Snag. Verse 17, she replied, I don't have a husband. Hmm. Now, for all she knows, Jesus is a complete stranger. Jewish man happens to wander in. She doesn't know why he wandered into Sychar, why he's sitting down by, by the well in the middle of the day when it's hot and nobody else comes to the well. And for all she knows, he's just some stranger that she's just going to pass like two ships in the night. And so there's no reason to hang out her dirty laundry in front of this man. And she says, I don't have a husband. Lots of ways to interpret that. Lots of ways to calibrate that statement. Maybe her husband died. Maybe she never got married. Maybe her husband was lost at sea. Who knows? I don't have a husband. And all of a sudden, this stranger says, you're right. You've been married five times, and the guy you're sleeping with is not your husband. Boom! Now, notice how she reacts to that. Verse 19, sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. Wow. Now, look at this in verse 20. Notice how that the conversation shifts at this moment because she perceives at this moment Jesus is a religious man. So tell me, verse 20, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship? Now, I want to make sure I I can give you at least everything I see about this text because Jesus is kind of like zeroed in on her personal life and she doesn't want to talk about her personal life. And she says, oh, I get it now. You want to talk religion. Hey, I can talk religion. 
Why is it you Jews say Jerusalem is a place to worship? We Samaritans say it's here in Samaria. We're going to talk religion now. It's amazing to me how that people who don't have any godliness in their life can still talk religion. I mean, do you know people like that? Maybe you people you work with? I mean, they live the craziest lifestyles, but man, if you want to talk about the Left Behind series, they can talk to you about the Left Behind series. They can talk to you about church. They can talk to you about religion. I mean, I, I hear about people, you know, just really away from God, but boy, they know the Bible from cover to cover. I don't think that's really true, but there are people that say such things. And that's what this woman is saying. She's been married five times, sleeping with the man who wasn't her husband. Jesus has said, that's what's going on. She said, oh, I know you're a religious man now. You want to talk religion. Okay, let's talk about how we have a, let's talk about how we have a difference of view about religion. You Jews say Jerusalem, we say Mount Gerizim. So what's the deal? Now this is her way of distancing herself from this personal conversation that Jesus has embarked on. Notice how Jesus reacts in verse 21 of chapter 4. Jesus replied, believe me, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father here or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know so little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him. For salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming and is already here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for anyone who will worship Him that way, for God is a spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, hey, this happened 2,000 years ago, but I want us to put all our antenna up in March of 2006 because what Jesus said is totally, totally salient to your life and my life right now. The woman is asking him a question, which is right. Is it right to be a Baptist or a Catholic? Is it, is it right to be, you know, is, is it right to be a Methodist or a Pentecostal? Which one is the right, which, which is the right way? And Jesus is saying, you don't understand, it's not about religion. He said, God is a spirit. And the people who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's talk about those two for a moment. What does it mean to worship God in spirit? Uh, we, we, we use that term. What does it mean to worship God in spirit? God is a spirit. We're spiritual people. Our worship. You just worshiped the Lord a little while ago. What does it mean to worship God in spirit? Well, it comes down to this. When you worship God today, could you see him? You say, no, it would be helpful, Mark. It would be helpful. If God would just sit up here on the stage and we could look at him, it would make it easier to worship him. But God doesn't want it that way. Because see, what God wants from you more than anything else is he wants your faith. You say, well, Mark, I thought he wanted my money. No, he wants your faith. He wants, God is looking for people who will trust him. If he visually manifests himself, you don't have to trust him anymore. You can go by sight. God doesn't want you to go by sight. He wants you to trust him. So worshiping God in spirit says, God, even though I can't see you, I believe you're there. Even though you don't speak back to me audibly, I believe you heard me. And even though I don't understand the way you work, I know you are at work. And even though it doesn't make any sense, I believe that your son Jesus is the sacrifice for the, all the sins of the world. That's worshiping God in spirit. Not being able to see him, not being able to hear him, but trusting him in spirit and in truth. Now, truth is the revealed word that God has given us through his son, Jesus Christ, and through the Bible, God's holy scriptures. 
That's why when you come in here on Sunday mornings, I open the Bible and I give you God's Word. Because see, it's not enough just to worship God in, in saying, well, I believe there's some invisible God out there. The Word of God has a way of dialing the message in. It has a way of bringing God into focus, helping us understand who He is and what He has to say about how we live our lives. So do you see what Jesus is saying to the Samaritan woman? I mean, I'm talking to some of you here today, and maybe you have a Baptist background or a Catholic background, or, or maybe you don't even have a Christian background, and you're saying, well, Mark, I, I like the relics of worship. I like the ceremony of worship. Those are the very things that won't get you closer to God. God wants you to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And worship is about getting together with other people who believe the same thing and joining with them in worshiping God. So Jesus is saying God is looking for people who are going to worship God on that basis. Verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah will come, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. The woman is saying, I don't understand anything you're saying. Just going right over my head. But I, I've been to church. I went to Sunday school. And when I was a little girl, they told me that th- there's a prophecy out there that someday the Messiah, the anointed one, is going to come. Now, as I said, the Samaritans had this sort of convoluted worship system. A little bit of Jewish scripture and a little bit of paganism. But she had enough truth to know that God had promised that he was going to send his son into the world, the Savior. And the woman said, someday Messiah is coming. And whenever he comes, he'll explain all this to us. Now notice what Jesus said. This is awesome. Verse 26. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Or you may have a translation in which the pronoun is used. Jesus said, I am he. In effect, he was saying, I'm the Messiah, and I just explained it to you. She said, I know Messiah's coming. When he comes, he'll explain it. Jesus said, I'm him. You just heard it. So what happens next? Verse 27. Just then his disciples arrived. They were astonished to find him talking to a woman. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing how we often miss things? I mean, you know, this incredible interchange has taken place. Great things are going to come of it, as we'll see in just a moment. And the disciples come back and say, why is he talking to a woman? And here of all places. But none of them asked him why he was doing it or what they had been discussing. The woman left her water jar beside the well and went back to the village and told everyone, Come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. And the rest is history. Many of them accepted Jesus. Isn't that great? I mean, this is the last person you would think Jesus would meet. And yet, I don't know of anybody Jesus ever met who turned out to be instantly more productive for the kingdom of God than this woman. She went back to the city, and she said, come out and see this man. This is the Messiah. Isn't this the Messiah? And they came out, and eventually they would tell her, you know, we came out here because of what you said, but now we've seen him, and we believe for what we've seen ourselves. I've got to bring this in for a landing. This is my favorite Bible story, by the way. So in bringing it in for a landing, i, I got to give you two thoughts. I, I can't help but see something in the life of this woman. I don't think, really, when it gets right down to it, she understood a single thing that Jesus said to her. 
When he talked about worshiping God in spirit and truth and living water and, and being the Messiah and explaining everything, I don't think she understood any of what he was saying. But she wanted it. She didn't understand it, but she wanted it. That's what I like about her. You know, you read Jesus' stories in the Bible, and it's like he was always giving the message, and people were always like saying, well, wait a minute. How are you going to do this? How's it? And, and because they have the hows and the whys, it's like they never accept Jesus. This woman was saying, I don't understand any of this, but I want you. I want you in my life. I, I see an instant parallel between her and me. Because there's so much about the Scripture and the gospel, the good news, that I don't understand. How can a God that I can't see, how can he know me? And how can he love me so much that he would give his only son to die on a cross to pay for my sins? How does God wash away all my sins? How does he write my name in the census book of heaven? How will he get me out of this life and in the life to come? How will he take my dead body when I die and make a new body? I'm like the Samaritan woman. I don't know the answers to any of those things. I just know I want it. I don't understand. And I don't even have to understand. I'm not going to let that stand in my way. I just want it. That's the first thing that stands out to me. Second thing, I'm a very curious person. I'm curious to know what she became. Because it is true that Jesus will meet you as you are, but he will not leave you as he found you. <laughs> when he comes into your life, he goes to work and things are never the same again. So much so that the Bible says if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. <laughs> I'd love to know what she became. I was thinking about this last night, meditating on it, and an old story came back to my mind. Many years ago, I was pastor of a church in Houston back in the late 70s when I first graduated from school. Our church was in a tough area, and I loved it. Houston was a melting pot. People came from all over, and I got to be there on the right at ground zero watching God change some lives in the most dramatic way. I got through with the Sunday night service, and a family came up to me who lived in a mobile home park not far from the church, and they said, Pastor... We have a neighbor, and, and his, his life is a mess. His home is just awful, and, and he came home drunk again, and his wife is crying, and our neighbor just needs the Lord, and would you go talk to him? Instantly, I was nervous about this because I knew he was drunk, and, and, and when I talk to people who are drunk, I, I like to wait till they kind of sober up so they'll remember what we said. But I thought maybe he'll be in at least partial shape to hear what I've got to say. So I remember walking in and still see it, even though it's been... Now going on 30 years, it's like it was yesterday. I remember walking into the mobile home and going to the back bedroom. The room was a wreck. There was a man, a figure of a man, basically dressed in rags, looking at the wall, curled up in the fetal position. The room smelled of human odors and alcohol. And I got enough from him and his wife to know that his name was Rel. And I began to talk to him about Jesus. 
But now, I got to tell you, Raul was, he wasn't just drunk. I mean, I'd even hate to, I'd, I don't even have any idea what his blood alcohol was. It was off the charts. He lay there and never even turned to look at me. And I began to talk to him about Jesus. And I said to him, if you will ask Jesus to come into your life, he will cleanse you of all your sin. He will save you. He will change you. And he began to cry, as drunks sometimes do. And I didn't take it real seriously. Maybe I should have taken it a lot more seriously. But he began to shake and convulse. And he said, Reverend, I don't like to be called that, but he was from a different denomination or whatever. And that's what he called me. He said, Reverend, still it was back to me, facing the wall. He said, Reverend, God can't do anything for me. I said, why not? He was an Hispanic man. And he told me that he worked for the Harris County Sheriff's Department. He was a deputy. He said, I abuse my own people. There were many illegals in Harris County. And he said, I, I treat them badly. And he, he went on to tell me specifically what he did to them, how that he beat them with hose and just some bad things. And he said, I, I, he said, I, I, I abuse my own people. And he said, God can't forgive me. Well, I'm a 22-year-old kid straight out of Bible college. I don't know a whole lot. But I said, listen, the Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. And I said, if you would get out of that bed and get on your knees and pray with me, I believe God will keep his word and he'll save you. At that moment, that bag of laundry turned, flipped over on the bed. I mean, enough alcohol. I'm glad nobody lit a match in that room. And he got down on his knees and he prayed to receive Christ. Now, I wish I could tell you I walked out of that mobile home with great faith, but I did not. I walked out of that mobile home. I said to Mary Alice, he won't remember a thing about this tomorrow. And I forgot about it pretty much. In those days, I was not only associate pastor of the church, I was worship pastor. And I got up to lead music the following Sunday. And everybody kind of settled in and we were singing a song. And all of a sudden, the back door opened, the middle door opened to the worship center and in walked this large family. And he trooped all the way down the aisle, the center aisle, and settled at about the third, third row, third pew back. And real attractive family, but the, the head of the family, the dad, was the one who caught my attention. He was an Hispanic man in a perfectly pressed black western suit with immaculately shined black western boots. You could see yourself in them. His hair was slicked back. He had a bolo tie and the corners of his collars. Uh, there, were, there were silver covers, ornate silver covers co covering the, the bottoms of his collar, the points of his collar. And he looked like he could have been on the cover of Texas Magazine. And I wondered, who is this guy? When all of a sudden I looked down and his eyes met mine and he moved up his hand to do this at me. <laughs> And to my shock and amazement, that was wrong. I baptized him that night. And I watched God change him. And this man that used to beat his own people became a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, that's why I'm saying I'd love to know what, what, what the rest of the story. That's why I, one of the reasons I can't wait to get to heaven. I want to sit down with Samantha, whatever her name was. I want to sit down and say, tell me what happened next. Because although Jesus will take you where you are, he will not leave you as he found you. Now, who am I talking to today? You got bad history. Bad history. Some of it's your stuff. Some of it's stuff that people have done to you. Some of it happened before you were born. 
bad history. Do you know Jesus is not afraid of getting your germs? He came to take your sins on him. And if you'll trust him today, he'll take away that bad history and he'll give you a good future. I'm going to ask you to pray with me, please, right now, heads bowed. Oh, we were so excited in the early service. There were so many who trusted Christ. I got to hear wonderful stories between 9.30 and 11 today. You could be one of those stories. Because Jesus will take you as you are, but he won't leave you as you found you. Now, here's what I want you to do. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I've got bad history. I'm a sinner. But I believe you died for me. I don't understand it all, but I want you. Come into my life. Save me and change me. In Jesus' name, amen.